HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. This week, Team HRN is at Charleston Wine and Food for the fifth year in a row. So, on this week's Meet and 3, we bring you some of our favorite sound bites from last year. The hospitality here yes. and the camaraderie is really wonderful. Yes. That's what struck Everybody me. Everybody smiles. So, imagine if you mix dirt with sand. Yes. You've got our earth. Yes. That sounds like that would be really poor. Really poor, condition. right? <laughs> you know, we can talk all we want about a good story, but a good story is useless if the wine isn't great. It's highly Instagrammable. It looks so gory. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti from Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, in for Coral Lee. Today we will discuss street food, emphasis on the street, that dwelling place of the collective and site of liveliness. Our guest is sociologist Krishnendu Ray, who is the chair of the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at NYU Steinhardt. Dr. Ray delivered the distinguished lecture at the annual event co-sponsored by SOAS University of London and Gastronomica, where he explored the vitality of street food, its vendors, and why cities should protect these spaces from the homogenizing gaze of the global north. Krishnendu, welcome to Meant to be Eaten. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with a question you posed in your SOAS lecture a question that seems to operate as a guiding thread for your work in and beyond the academy. You ask, could good food be made congruent with good livelihoods for poor people and a lively city? So rather than jump to the answer to this question, let's begin with this question's origin story, which might also give us insights into your origin story as a scholar. How did food, the marginalized, and cityscapes become subjects for you? Hmm. Good question. So I would say, uh, for me, in fact, food became uh, visible um, after I immigrated to the United States. After I came to the United States, uh, I realized that I had been fed three meals a day, every day. And uh, in spite of doing quite progressive politics, uh, most of my female friends were feminists in Delhi, 
we had never thought about, and I had specifically never thought about uh, food and cooking and the care that went into it. And it is, I sometimes say that for me, immigration uh, uh, was kind of an epistemological act. It opened up a whole new world, the inverse of what, say, um, anthropologist does, is when an anthropologist enters a new domain, a new world, a lot of things that are obvious get lit up uh, because they enter with that kind of a new habitus, new um, ways of uh, uh, into spaces that they have not normalized and thought about. So for me, moving to the United States opened up this whole door into, I would say, the the quotidian, uh, specifically about food. Uh, and as my work developed, my first book was on immigrant home cooking, which where I was struggling to think about uh, what C. Wright Mills, a sociologist, calls connect your personal troubles to social questions, mm-hmm. uh, was what I was feeling, nostalgia about food. Do other immigrants feel like that? Uh, can I access that? How is similar and how is different? And once I finished that, which was my Migrants Table uh, book, uh, what was also obvious to me in the American urban space is that immigrants were everywhere in the food system. Uh, From the agricultural system, we have about uh, two million uh, uh, agricultural workers who are mostly foreign born, to say restaurants which were most visible in cities. Um, It was obvious that foreign born were doing most of the work. So that led me to question, uh, is this a recent phenomena? Uh, Has this happened before? Uh, And of course, it turns out that we have data from 1850 onwards on occupation and birthplace. And we know that the foreign born dominated the feeding occupations, uh, bakers, butchers in New York City, 90 to almost 100% of bakers, butchers, saloon keepers are foreign born. They just happen to be Irish or German and then Italian and Eastern European Jews or Greek and of course today Asians and Latinos. So that led to my, uh, inevitably to my second book which is The Ethnic Restaurantor. And uh, having completed that book, of course, there was one domain I had not uh, systematically engaged with, uh, which was the street. So I looked at home, I had looked at the restaurant, but had not looked at the street. So that inevitably led to this work on street vending. And that's certainly one of the themes in your work. You know, so food studies, I think, typically trains its eye on static places, whether it's territory or the table or the kitchen. And you seem to be fascinated, perhaps because of your own uh, background story, with movement, uh, with change, and with the kind of challenges that come with that. So talk a little bit more about how the cityscape is this sort of crossing point for all this movement and how we think of food as this kind of movable object. Very well put. Uh, You're obviously the philosopher and I'm the sociologist. (laughs) The kind of depths of it, you're absolutely right. Um, I would say if there's one way to define my work, it would be about mobility and material culture, and specifically food as an aspect of material culture and change. And uh, and for me, uh, it, it is both, uh, in this particular case on street vending, is, is it is linked uh, to the street as a kind of a space uh, and a sidewalk as a, as a kind of a space. And there's a lot of discussion in places like, say, Bangkok or Singapore before that, 
uh, Shanghai right now and specifically Delhi uh, where I'm kind of beginning to do uh, in-depth work. Uh, there's a sense that these cities, modern cities are built, ought to be built for uh, cars, for automobility. And in some ways, walking, biking, selling stuff on the street is somehow backward and outdated. And which, which borrowing from my professor Emmanuel Wallerstein's work, I call kind of the developmentalist delusion. The idea that everything should be focused on flows, flows of people, flows of cars, flows of capital. And in fact, anything that slows it down is an obstruction. And I have learned from uh, food studies. I've learned from other people's work on food studies, uh, including uh, Sidney Mintz's work when he said, well, uh, I like slow food, but I think what we should be really uh, seeking is f food at medium speeds, uh, not fast food. And of course, the history of fast food in the United States, uh, corporate fast food is linked to automobility. So in some ways, this is emerging was emerging on my horizon as a critique of uh, uh, developmentalism, as a critique of developmentalism based on automobility, where you whiz past things and you go to destinations rather than you wander and you walk, you slow down, you listen, you think, you eat golgappas, you eat samosas of the street and you move on to the next thing. In, so, in some ways, uh, this was a reminder of what is emerging as a critique of some people have called it the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene, the idea that all our social infrastructure should be built for uh, pace and mobility of capital and labor. Uh, and the critique that is emerging and very strong in food studies uh, uh, is this idea that we need to slow down uh, and maybe there is kind of a virtue, uh, and not only just uh, for our inner lives, uh, but also in some ways how we come to think about cities and, and what's, how cities should be built. And we see aspects of it even in this. I would say my two home cities today are New York City and, and Delhi. And in New York City, you see the slow resurgence of biking. Mm -hmm. Uh, but first, as kind of a leisure activity, and that that led to the transformation of cities as in some slightly better spaces to bike, which are now been slowly taken over by working class folks who are delivering food basically on these bike lanes. And that there has emerged a kind of a class conflict between biking for leisure, biking for pleasure, and biking for work. And, and, and that made visible to me this new thinking that urban planners, urban sociologists, food studies scholars, philosophers like you have are pointing to about change, rate of change, a pace of change, modes of uh, 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 transformation and transportation that all of us have to think about if we are going to do anything about uh, the crisis of uh, global warming. Okay, so a lot to unpack there. So let's let's back up, I think, mm -hmm. to maybe the first piece of this, which is that middle place between fast food and slow food, making cities that are livable, cities that are accessible, and cities that, that create opportunities for contact and exchange, mm -hmm. it seems. Now, that can go both ways. It seems your project is motivated by empowering the marginalized, empowering those who uh, perhaps 
don't always have access to channels of power. But there's also in way, a way in which the developmentalism that you're critiquing and the alternative that you're presenting here is also a part of gentrification mm. and is a part of the reach of capital. So we slow people down so they can buy, so they can do things. So what separates street food in the vision of empowerment that you have from street food that is food tourism or that is there uh, so that uh, capital is moving rather than people moving and interacting? Lovely question. I don't think I have a, a, a totally thought through answer, uh, but I think for me, uh, uh, one of the challenges of, of course, slowing down capital for further consumption and hyper-consumption is one of the challenges. And I think what makes food, street food, sexy and attractive is what other sociologists have called this omnivorousness. Now, I'm not only uh, uh, happy consuming uh, elite uh, French haute cuisine or maybe upscale Mexican food, but I also want to find out about the best tacos and the best golgappas, and I travel across the world consuming the world. Uh, and that is the aperture of, in some ways, uh, con the consumer citizen or the hyper-consumer. And that, I think, is a tension and in my work, I think it is, I try to balance it with questions of livelihood, of questions of people who are selling. So in some ways, I would say, and maybe make a confession here, I don't really care all the time that much about terrific food on my palate. I care enough about it, but I also care about the lives of people who are selling me food on the street, and a lot of it is mediocre food, and that's okay. Uh, like like me, in most things I do in my life, is is a part of it is the aspiration to be good, uh, to do it well. But I think nine out of ten times, the classrooms I teach in, I'm probably mediocre, uh, and it's okay uh, to engage with people's real lives, not just as a consumer, but in this case, as a citizen, uh, as someone who shares the street, as shares the city. So for me, livelihoods are the central question. If you don't care about livelihoods of people who are selling you food, who are making you this food, in spite of massive constraints, like in Delhi, or, or even in New York City, where you don't have running water, right? You don't have a bathroom to go to, okay? And we expect you to be hygienic. How exactly are you going to do that? Um, uh, do I think about it? Uh, do I worry about it? Should I try to do something to change about it? So for me, this, this, uh, the other side of this um, thinking of food only as a side of consumption, what does it do to me? What do I learn? Has to be balanced by a sense of what are other people doing and what are their struggles? What are they struggling with? And in this particular case, say in Delhi, there are about 400,000 street vendors uh, who support almost two to three million people and mostly poor people. So poor people's livelihood, I try my best to keep uh, my eye on the question of poor people's livelihood as the central question and then think about consumption, uh, the artifact, the food, uh, and also about liveliness of the city. And in this triangle, the good food, uh, good livelihoods, uh, in particularly constrained contexts, uh, and lively spaces become kind of the three 
corners of my triangle that enables me for now to conceptualize uh, cities, urban spaces as sites of engagement across class barriers, race barriers, caste barriers, and think of them a little more than just site that feed my omnivorous hunger about everything in the world. So what, what has to come first in this? Mm. Is it the change in infrastructure, the material changes, or the conceptual change, the change in the way that we, we see and understand the other? Because this is, you know, was one of the fascinating aspects of your last book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, is that your reframing of the question of ethnicity as it pertains to restaurants actually had an effect on restaurant criticism, on the way that people understood how that term gets deployed and how it shapes not just people's mindsets, but the way that they spend their dollars mm. at restaurants. So what needs to, to come first here? Because a mindset change places the focus on the global West, mm. on power, mm. whereas the infrastructure change is an immediate gesture towards those who are in need there. Fantastic question. Um, I, again, I don't think I have an answer to it other than uh, I'm going to think along with you here, uh, where uh, it, it, partly because I know that you are kind of a Heideggerian scholar, <laughs> it's where is a sense that I'm thrown into this world. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, a lot of it is, as theory of practice people identify, a lot of the stuff we do with food and walking and strolling are in fact not available to our consciousness. Uh, They're they slowly seeping into my consciousness. And as they do, I engage in this world of walking and biking and, and running and eating and wandering and talking to people. And as constituted, uh, this world that is already constituted and I'm thrown into it, I think about it in a twofold way. And you're absolutely right. One, I think about what would make it easier uh, for practitioners uh, uh, to in, in some ways do good by uh, poor people's lives. And I'll give you an example today from New York City. Today is March uh, 1st, uh, and today is the day, for instance, uh, New York City residents can no longer use single-use plastic bags. Okay, uh, it's a terrific example of an infrastructural change that, for instance, I think is very good for the city. But I have mostly never not followed it very closely. I go to my Korean greengrocer, I buy a bunch of stuff. It is one or two or three things. I walk away with it in my pockets. But after four or five or six things, I get a plastic bag. Okay, so in a sense, here I am thinking about uh, climate change, waste, uh, and I should have been acting much more consistently. I like the fact that March 1st is a day and they have given us about a month that we have to kind of re-engineer our practice uh, in a habitual way. So in fact, I went to the uh, greengrocer, Korean greengrocer today, my favorite Korean greengrocer, and said, oops, uh, I didn't bring my bag today. Uh, and he said, okay, I'll wait for you. Go run across and get your uh, bag from home. So this is mind change, changing of our minds by in fact, infrastructural pressure on it, you know? And, if, uh, and how to do that, uh, and how to do that in terms of uh, street vending, for instance, in Delhi, um, we plan cities, Indian cities, uh, there are these plans for smart city in India, for instance. 
where uh, the presumption is we're going to have these smart cities, uh, in quotation smart, and by smart they mean digitally smart, with biometric recognition, uh, uh, things that don't slow you down. But I think it's a stupid way of thinking about smart. Uh, uh, and, and that is because we plan these cities, Indian cities, uh, for cars, uh, assuming that there are not going to be any street vendors. And every city has about 1% or 2% of its population as street vendors. So a really smart city should think about, okay, we have cars, we have to deal with cars and maybe slow them down like we're doing in New York City too and make it more difficult for them in one way. The other thing is we have to think about pedestrian traffic on the sidewalk, okay? In between, we can create spaces for street vending because most people, remember in places like India, Almost everyone buys their fruits and vegetables from street vendors. Why don't we plan our cities assuming, A, they're going to be cars, as we assume now, B, that they're going to be pedestrians, as we assume now, C, that they're going to be street vendors. That is the real smart city. Otherwise, I think it's a dumb city. We are thinking about digitization. We are thinking about all kinds of things, uh, uh, but not what is obvious in front of our face. Uh, and that would lead to some kind of thinking infrastructural change and with the infrastructural change some people will be forced to change their mind and others would have already changed their mind like the plastic bag would it make it easier for me to be habitually a better citizen of New York City uh, than would have been possible if there was none of those kind of infrastructural changes already in place. Yeah, and food research, we call those nudges. Is that, sometimes is that what those it is? nudges can be, can, be, can be more forceful than others. But on the grand scale, of course, that is the real challenge. So this might be a good place to take a break okay. so that we can come back and, and talk about how your work is actually trying to bring those smarter cities uh, into a realization. You're listening to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after this short break. This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. Founded by Shuichi Kotani, Worldwide Soba offers noodle consulting services in addition to supplying a variety of tools for wannabe noodle makers. Want to take a class? Worldwide Soba has it. Need a traditional Japanese soba knife? Worldwide Soba has that too. To learn more, visit worldwide-soba.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti from Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. In for Coral Lee. Krishnan Dure and I were just discussing what it means for a city to be truly smart and how work in food studies might help to bring some of that about. So could you tell us a little bit about your work as an academic reaching beyond the academy? Because this seems to be the focus of the large research project that you're part of now. Exactly. And I think this is partly a recognition um, in my life. Uh, I would say I probably identify with two homes, uh, urban India mm, and urban uh, America, United mm -hmm. States. So in a sense, to be more specific, maybe New York City and Delhi. Uh, and um, one of the challenges that has been, I would say, becoming acute, at least in my sense of self, is that I do all this work uh, in the academy, I teach in the academy, and almost none of this reaches, very, uh, reaches out to a wider public uh, 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 in any substantial way. 
my last book was a lesson to me uh, that in fact I wrote it in a turgid academic style uh, in, in spite of that it had an impact in the public sphere about how restaurants are reviewed in it I said that American tastemakers have this hierarchy of taste in their mind where they in fact are willing to think about haute cuisine as French or New American or uh, Italian uh, uh, and just beginning to think about that as Greek and uh, Korean but not Chinese and Thai and Indian I was surprised pleasantly surprised that people waded through my very convoluted uh, uh, prose uh, in the ethnic restaurant or, uh, to begin to change their practice in ways that was meaningful. Uh, and I mean specifically journalists, commentators, etc. That opened a window for me to say, you know what, uh, my next work should in fact much more self-consciously engage with it, especially in the context of what I see as crisis of democracy. And these two places I identify with, United States and India, are, are one of the oldest democracies in the world and other is the largest democracy in the world. And both, I think, are facing a kind of a catastrophic crisis, uh, partly based on race, uh, partly based on religious identity, uh, and based on forms of nationalism, ex uh, exclusionary uh, nationalism. And so, I, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, my identification with these two places as homes uh, has forced me to say, okay, I need to do a little more public work, a public engagement, style of writing, style of commenting, which for me then, gastronomica, uh, the emergence of gastronomica as a journal uh, became a fascinating opportunity because the objective of gastronomica is to engage with the wider public with beautifully produced articles. Uh, and for me, uh, 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 I mean, th I was really excited when we started to form the collective. And the other part is I don't, I know I don't have have all the skills to produce a journal on my own uh, in terms of my I struggle with English language still in terms of writing uh, and this provided this collective that we are about uh, a dozen people or more uh, who uh, are specialists in aspects of it and gastronomica's ambition to take academic research and speak to a wider public where in fact we are not only talking about smart and interesting and well-researched articles but also beautifully produced. I'm in fact surprised every time I see gastronomic, including the latest one, where you will see a lot of this work on street vending, how beautiful it is as a material object. And that poses the question, how, how do I communicate to a wider audience and be at least do my little bit in terms of enlivening democratic public uh, uh, thinking? about things like uh, food, food culture, immigrant lives, and immigrant lives in New York and immigrant lives in Delhi. And this is one of the real challenges when you work with food. On the one hand, you're reaching for this democratic ideal. Mm -hmm. But we know that food is also extremely subjective in terms of our taste, our identity. It's tied to our individual cultures and oftentimes gets deployed as a source of political division rather than something, something that unifies. So I wanted to take this idea from, from out of your SOAS lecture once again, because you say that one of the overarching themes of the um, City Food uh, Research Project is to find lessons across national and urban spaces, a form of cosmopolitanism with local roots. So you're actively trying to bridge the two, this kind of, kind of worldly gaze, but sort of emerging from the ground up. But there's lots of baggage associated with the idea of cosmopolitanism. 
either in the general or the philosophical sense. So could you explain how the work that you're trying uh, to accomplish now bridges the global with the local mm. without losing difference? Yeah. How does it not become part of the homogenizing gaze? Yeah, no, uh, thanks, Bob, for the question. Yeah. These questions are really um, terrific. Um, partly because I don't have a pet answer to these questions, in fact. Uh, and I worry about it, both sides of it. One is the danger of cosmopolitanism always is slippery, bird's eye view, uh, homogenizing, which is the argument, for instance, um, a lot of anthropologists and sociologists made of uh, Arjun Apadurai's work on mobility and material culture, about flows, uh, that in some ways it becomes a sociology of frequent flyers. Uh, where uh, where we lose the sense of the everyday friction, uh, uh, and and uh, so uh, this is both the project, uh, which is cityfood uh, dot org, which is our organization where a lot of the work, the first draft of our work, we put out in the public, we put pictures of it. It, it, it. The one side of it is to make it accessible, but as as a side of engagement and even quarreling about it. And the quarreling part of it is the frictional aspect of it. So uh, give you an example, uh, say the the say the four hundred thousand street vendors of Delhi are all uh, rural to urban migrants. Um, and they're all moving. And their movement, in fact, is driven by uh, inability to make a living in a place. Uh, I don't know, and I'm doing uh, interviews now, I don't know whether they always think about mobility as a positive thing. It is a liability. They're being forced to move. And I, as it happens when capitalism reaches the countryside, happened in England and happened in Ireland and happened in uh, Italy, is happening in India now, where people are being thrown off the land. And people, in fact, most of the migrants in the world today are rural to urban migrants in sub-Saharan Africa, in India, in China. And these are people who are being forced to move, forced to leave. So in a sense, cosmopolitanism can be too easy a frame to think about where they are, in fact, struggling to keep attachment to their roots, yet adapt in a new context. So what I'm really interested in is this kind of the two aspects of it, about roots and routes of dispersal. And all of us as human beings, with different degrees of engagement with it, we engage with the question of where do we come from, what our roots are, and what are what is changing, and what is new and exciting about it, and what is the price one pays for it. There's a sense of loss in all my interviews with street vendors. There's a sense of loss of what they have left behind, where they are being forced to leave, move because they don't have access to land, because access to land has become very ex uh, expensive, access to inputs of agriculture have become very expensive because of capital intensity of it, mm. you know, and that is what driving them out. So cosmopolitanism, in a sense, I would say probably critical cosmopolitanism would be a better frame, and yet always be aware of the frictions of the of the things that people are forced to do, including move, which is not a willing, willful thing, but they are being chased out in some ways. And you see that literally in India over the last few days with lynchings and pogroms against minorities and Muslims who are being driven out of their bastis, of their mohallas. And so one has to think about mobility uh, as kind of the catastrophic consequences of forced mobility 
Yeah, and you have a wonderful way of phrasing this. You say that, I think it was also once again in your lecture, that you say that, that street food is a symptom of the precarity of the everyday. And so how is it that you get not only those in charge perhaps of developing infrastructure, but you might say the broader public uh, for whom food is the immediate satisfaction of a need? How do you get the, the broader world to understand and to identify and to address that precarity? Because that seems to be the origin, you know, the, the kind Absolutely. of delicate you know, foundation for city life. Absolutely. And, and, and do it in different ways. So, uh, say, uh, the Street Vendor Project in New York City, if you're interested in New York City, if you're listening to this in New York City, uh, Street Vendor Project is a fantastic uh, advocacy group formed about two decades ago. Uh, they do fascinating work in, um, they, they had a Vendi Awards where they bring good food uh, um, and marry it uh, to the question of livelihoods uh, of, of street vendors. If you do it in, uh, uh, Delhi, it's the NASVI, National Association of Street Vendors of India. They do fascinating work with advocating, for instance, uh, one of the big changes we can make is providing bathrooms uh, to street vendors, uh, which would be linked to public bathrooms, which also, by the way, will increase public bathrooms, just like uh, w what we did with sidewalks. When, the, when we changed our sidewalks, so people with disabilities could walk or move on those sidewalks, we also made the lives of mothers with infants much better, inadvertently, okay? And similarly, we can do one thing we can do, in Delhi or in New York City is, for instance, have public bathrooms much more available. And that will change the quality of life of poor people who are forced to vent and don't have a place to go to to use the bathroom. So that is one way in, in New York City, there's a bill in front of the city council called Intro 1116, which is an argument about changing some of the rules, some of the licensing and the numbers. And we can make an intervention either while eating terrific food at the Vendi Awards or eating terrific food at the street food festival have fun, uh, have a great time, but ask about maybe one challenge that the street vendor faces and maybe make one call or an email or tweet out uh, uh, with a target. In this case, say Corey Johnson, the speaker, bring intro 1116 uh, to the city council. There are 51 members in the city council. 28 members support this bill, but the speaker is not bringing it on because there's immense pressure on him from the business improvement districts, from real estate lobby. And one way to do it, tweet it out to him and mm -hmm. say, uh, 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 speaker, make the life of these street vendors a little easier uh, by uh, bringing in intro 1116. So for those who are sympathetic to this idea, but perhaps either you know, not familiar with street markets or not familiar with the, the types that you have in mind, can you, can you point to an example, whether it's here in New York uh -huh. or it's in, in another city, that, that you see as the model for the path forward? for the kind of new model of development? Does it, or does it exist? Yeah, yeah, no, and there, there are lots of examples. Uh, in Delhi, uh, in Durban, uh, South Africa, there's an example where street vendor advocacy group argued for uh, de designing a, a, a space under a flyover, which would allow a bit of protection for the street vendors, and they then uh, sued the city in Delhi, 
and this organization uh, are like SEWA and organizations like WIGO. Uh, these are acronyms. Uh, and uh, uh, they sue the city to make changes uh, and add kind of uh, in the planning infrastructure. Uh, they negotiated with the architect. They created a bazaar, a market. And the market is specifically called a ladies' market because there's a lot of harassment of women and especially women vendors. So this was a vending space created with a beautiful uh, infrastructure under the flyover, uh, with bathrooms, with uh, uh, a portable water, uh, and specifically uh, uh, as a safe space for female street vendors. And eventually that came about with participation of the local Delhi government, uh, because the Delhi government was interested in votes of these vendors, these vendors vote. So that's why I think in a democratic universe, you can make these alliances in which you can make interventions in the lives and livelihoods of poor people and design cities which are compatible with a beautiful city and a good city, a good city for the who had been the poor and the marginal. So maybe as a, as a last thought, as we, as we wrap up this rather wide-ranging discussion, uh, maybe we can take it back to the beginning. I'd asked you at the start about your origin as a scholar. So if you were to think back to that moment and the idea of what mobilized you and what mobilized your thinking, was it longing? Was it desire for a sense of belonging? And how might that help us to see what you have seen in your research? Again, a beautiful question. I think it was a mix of longing and loss. And the longing was palatal, emotional, imaginative. Uh, and, uh, and the loss was also a sense of loss of liveliness of streets on one side of it, but also, as I said, in the first instance, linked with a kind of a recognition in a new context with new eyes. I think I'm a much better Indian citizen today because I moved to New York City. It allowed me to see more important things that were invisible to me in spite of my progressive politics, including the lives of poor people who spend their lives feeding us. So what is my responsibility to those people? They became a lot more visible to me as I have come and lived in New York City. It has made also made me a better citizen in New York City. My India work is shaping my New York City work, which is saying, okay, I'm surrounded by, there are 20,000 street vendors, and, and what are their lives? Most of them are Arabic speakers, Bengali speakers, Spanish speakers. And what, what difference can I make in terms of my life and their life? Not as charity, but in fact as a more congenial space of engagement. In this case, across a class barrier. In Delhi's case, I would say also across class, caste, and religious barriers. And, and it just, in, in my work now, and I'm learning here, uh, I'm a novice, I'm learning here from other people's work, uh, and, and that kind of a, a collaborative intellectual project. And in some ways what I say is now I have discovered the taste for local food and local politics, and the transformative possibility in both of them. Of course, cities are great places, right? Because when we eat with others, we're often eating with the other. And that's the key, it would seem. Exactly. 
Thank you so much for being with us, Krishnendu. Thanks a lot, Bob. If you would like to learn more about this research and other work featured in Gastronomica, visit gastronomica.org, where you can access the spring 2020 issue for free until the end of this year. Or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, is an international interdisciplinary journal that presents new and original research, advances our understanding of compelling issues in the world of food, and invites critical debate and commentary across diverse audiences. Gastronomica is supported by the University of California Press, and on behalf of the journal's editorial collective, I want to thank the Heritage Radio Network, Meant to be Eaten, and its host, Coral Lee, for allowing us to share this mini-series of podcasts. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.